Hello, my name is Andrew Dalkey. Welcome to episode 2 of Molecular Coding. A few weeks ago, I was at the International Conference on Chemical Structures in the Netherlands. During lunchtime, I met Paolo Tosco. He was talking with others at the table about how the Comfa patent meant that his 3D CubeStar package was available at no cost to most people in the world, but it could be released as free software until the European patent expired on 17th of June 2011. I asked him more about his project, and I was impressed by both what he's done and also with the amount of work he puts into supporting the people who might use his software. He very kindly gave me a crash course in 3D QSAR, so I would know enough to be able to interview him about his project. The interview took place on the 7th of June, 2011. If you want to try out his software, open3dqsar.org is for the tool that does high-throughput chemometric analysis of molecular interaction fields. Its sister site, open3dalign.org, does unsupervised molecular alignment, and sdf to xyz to sdf.sourceforge.net does atom type assignment for the Merck molecular force field implementation in Tinker. So welcome again to Molecular Coding. I'm here with Paolo Tosco, who has written a um, 3D QSAR program. The software is Open 3D QSAR model and uses Open Babel and it's an open source project, or almost open source. Yes. So I thought I would talk with you about what what's going on, more about the maybe the software components that go into it. Yeah. So, well, Open 3D QSAR will be fully open source in a few days because the an infamous CONFA patent will actually expire on the 18th June, so I will be able to freely distribute the software under a GPL v3 license in really a few days, while until now it was restricted to non-European countries because the patent expired in the USA, and so I could distribute everywhere but in like 12 European countries. But this is going to end very soon, so it will be truly open source. Okay, and since I didn't know much about um, 3D QSAR, I'd ask Paolo to go through and walk me through the steps. And so I think we'll just go through that now of how you would use your, kind of the step-by-step how you would go through and use your tool to do science. Yeah. So basically, uh, 3D QSAR is a way to derive a correlation between the activities of a set of molecules and their 3D properties in terms usually of steric and electrostatic potential fields. So basically, you try to spot out the uh, zones of each compound which drive a better or a worse affinity for for your target. And of course, this technique is especially useful when you don't know very much about the target, or maybe you don't even know which the target is. And so the only information, the only experimental information that you can use is the one which comes from ligands. So you start off with using this where you have, what, a set of SD file that contains these are active and these are their yes. basic structure? You can, you, usually uh, you import an SD file which of course contains the 3D structures and along with the 3D structures there could be a field which encodes uh, affinity or PEC50 or PSIC50 or whatever. And uh, if you don't have a, an SD file which already um, encodes affinity, you can ex- import an external text file with the, the the activities provided, of course, that they are in the correct order and that they match the molecules in this default, but this is obvious, I mean. Yeah. Now, I know the next step in this was to do the confirmation generation, and I was looking through the mailing list that you had, and it looked like confirmation generation wasn't even added until last, what, September, last fall sometime. 
Yeah. Uh, the point is that confirmation generation is, you know, is a big problem, yes. as everyone knows, because um, it's, it's not very difficult as long as you take into consideration open structures, but it becomes a pain when you have to, uh, to, to sample, for instance, the ring systems. It's, it's definitely not easy to, to cut a ring and sample the confirmations and then rebuild the ring. It's, it's not easy to, to build a good uh, Monte Carlo uh, algorithm, for instance. So the way I, I decided to implement uh, confirmational searching was just using quench molecular dynamics so that is molecular dynamics at high temperature. The high temperature should be high enough to be able to overcome the torsional energy barriers, but not too high, for instance, to epimerize current centers or isomerize double bonds or these kind of things that usually you don't want to happen. But now, so most people who would do confirmation search would use something like, say, um, Karina or use um, the OpenAI tools to do this. And you decided to go ahead and implement your own confirmation generation tool. And that yeah. was how did, how did you go about doing that, and how good of a replacement is it, I guess, for the purposes of doing 3D QSAR? Yeah. Uh, the point is that I wanted the, that the whole suite did not include any kind of um, either closed source program or anyway non-free program. So I mm -hmm. had to, of course, rely on either free lab, freely available tools or something that I was coding on my own. So... The nice point is that uh, since I saw that uh, there was, there are not too many, or basically there is no Merck Forcefield enabled tool on the market which is competitive free. So uh, my basically my only choices were Open Babel and Tinker. Uh, while Open Babel can um, accomplish. Um, basic energy potential calculations with using the Merck force field. Of course, Tinker offers a much larger palette of possible calculations, including also, for instance, implicit solver models, which prove to be very handy when you're dealing with uh, conformations in solution of molecules. So my, my choice fell on Tinker, and uh, Merck force field was uh, implemented in Tinker a few years ago, but a big part was missing in this implementation because basically there was no tool to do the automatic atom typing of your input coordinate files. So the first step was to code something which was able to do the atom typing. And since I didn't want to reinvent the wheel from scratch, uh, of course I relied on the code which was already existing and already GPL'd, and the, that's the open Babel code. So um, I fixed a few bugs which were present in the Merck Forcefield uh, assignment code. And I basically added the part which converts the 99 Merck Forcefield atom types in the kind of 214 Tinker MMF-like uh, atom types. So you had to convert... Uh, I, I don't... I've never actually implemented MMFF, but it defines the atom types. So we have the SD file comes in, you fix the open Babel code so it does the correct yes. MMFF atom type assignment, and then you had to translate the MMFF type assignment into the tinker types. Exactly, because the, the tinker types, uh, basically, they they enrich a little bit the, the plain Merck Forcefield atom type because they add uh, other atom types which kind of encode also part of the charge inside the atom type itself. So it's a richer description of the original uh, Merck Forcefield atom type. And... Um, I talked with uh, Professor Ponder about this, this fact, and he was interested as well in a tool which was able to, to produce an XYZ file containing uh, Merck Forcefield atom types according to Tinker format. And that's why I also released 
as a, as a side dish, I would say, uh, a standalone tool which is just able to convert an SD file, either single or multi-molecule, in either one or a set of XYZ files ready to, for, for accomplishing calculations inside Tinker. So you can also find this, this other tool which has a very cumbersome name. I, I'm still asking myself why I use such a... <laughs> that, that's <laughs> the SDF to XYZ to SDF? Yes, you will win a prize for being able to spell it without... <laughs> yeah. That is a mouthful. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and this is just uh, so a standalone tool to, um, to accomplish atom typing. So that one doesn't even use OpenBabel at all. That's just by it, does, it does. It does. It does. Yes. Uh, um, to be to be to make things easier, uh, I did not really uh, directly link to the libraries, but actually, what what the tool does is calling the real binary. So you you know you bypass many of the problems that you can face with. Right. I have an old library on my system, and so the tool includes the the binaries, which uh, for any operating system, so you can use it quite comfortably, and you don't have to 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 care about the fact that you may have an updated or not version on on your system. So. So I'm also curious about how it was to integrate with Tinker because you're, you had to do two. There's one thing is, is I know it's written in Fortran. Yep. And the other thing is, is I also know that um, most of the times to use Tinker, you have to get it from. It's not. It's not freely available. I mean, it's freely available from no cost. Yeah. But it's not a GPL or BSD license. Yeah. yeah that was also my concern because, uh, of course, you can always use an external tool, but then all users will have the pain of having to get the tool their own and to uh, get the license and then to get the binaries and to compile the binaries for their own architecture and so on and so on. So this is something which, in my opinion, is already quite discouraging about using your software. So, of course, if you're able to pro to, to, to put together a full-feature package which has all the pieces that it needs to, works of, to work, of course, it's definitely better for anyone. So that's why I ask Professor Ponder whether I could actually include in my distribution their binaries, even if they are not strictly open source. And actually he was positive about that since given the open source nature of my project and of course the non-profit nature of the whole thing, he was very eager to, to, to allow me to do that. And I, I really thank him for this because he was really very collaborative and very interested in the whole thing. So I think this is a very good point in the whole story. And from what, I said, from what you were saying earlier too, you said that um, he also knew the fact that there's now an atom typer for the Merck force field. Yeah, so actually it was him encouraging me to uh, take the atom typing part out of Open3D Cursor and code it as a standalone tool which has the awkward name of SDF to access YZ, <laughs> blah, 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 and so on and so on. <laughs> so it was him really... Uh, <laughs> promoting the the fact that I released this additional tool as a, a standalone tool. So. Did you ever read The Hobbit? Yes, I did. There and back again? <laughs> well, um, I read it a long time ago, so I don't have very very clear memories about that. <laughs> the, the, the subtitle of that um, the, uh, uh, the Bilbo Baggins wrote for The Hobbit was There and Back Again. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, SDF right. to Z to XDF <laughs> yeah. is there and back again. Yeah, that, that's true. <laughs> okay, so you've got the little work of talking with Tinker, during the uh, confirmations, doing the uh, quenched MD to get all the different confirmations and get them back. You store them in some result that you use then for the next stage. What's the intermediate confirmer storage format? And the reason I'm asking this is because I know that if you you could save this in SD file, but then you're just saving a whole bunch of stuff over and over again. And when back in my MD days, 
Could we just yeah. save, save coordinates? I was just curious if you're using something that was, oh, maybe people should think about doing this for their conformers. So the, the point is that uh, while the SDF format uh, can uh, actually store multiple confirmations, the XYZ format can't because each XYZ file is for a single molecule. Mm -hmm. So the way I, I try to went around to go around it in the in the simplest way for for all users was that uh, you read the SDF file from standard input, and uh, in the SDF files you have a molecule name. So in the case that the molecule name is actually defined, uh, you will obtain an XYZ file with the proper name for each molecule which was in the original SD file. Right. And, you, and you will also obtain, along with the XYZ file, a key file with the keywords which are needed to accomplish the computations. Of course, uh, as a default, you get the basic set of keys. Uh, then you can add, for instance, keys for solving implicit solver models and whatever you want. Um, Actually, there was also a limitation uh, in the original um, uh, Tinker implementation of the Merck force field since it didn't work with charged heteromatic, heteroaromatic rings. And I could overcome this limitation because uh, you can supply an external set of Merck force field charges and apparently OpenBabel can perfectly assign Merck force field charges, while the original uh, implementation of the Merck force field inside Tinker couldn't. So actually, it looks like mixing uh, the Open3D stuff with the Tinker stuff actually did well to both of the other mm -hmm. software. So this is a good point. Right. Okay, so you generate other confirmations or confirmers. Yeah. So when, 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 once you have your XYZ files, you can get back to the SDF file just using the original SD as a template, and basically just the coordinates are updated in the original SD. So mm, that's, that's quite straightforward, and okay. I think it was pretty nice. So the next step that you do for your uh, QSA model is first you, you do a generate pharmacophores. And I saw that uh, Silicos was saying that you were using their Faro, Faro, Faro? Faro, I would say Faro, I think. I don't know if the correct pronunciation, but... Using the Silicos Faro tools, is, is most of the, you're doing the pharmacophore filtering, filtering with their tool? Uh, well, as a, as a beginning, I, I thought that I could use uh, Faro not not that much for the pharmacophore part, but es essentially as an alignment tool. But uh, after testing Faro with several datasets, especially the datasets from the Sutherland uh, benchmark suite, uh, I could see that some of the datasets were actually very fit to be aligned with the pharmacophore-based tool, but some of the others especially those which basically have a quite an ill-defined pharmacophore, they're not very fit for that because uh, basically all of the compounds making part of the data set have different collection of pharmacophoric points. So they are not really amenable to, to obtain a common template uh, out of that um, pharmacophores. So that's why I decided to enhance uh, the, the alignment part with some some tools coded on my own, which are not pharmacophore-based, but atom-based. That is, first you find the pairs of atoms which are most amenable to be matched, and then you do the actual matching. And that seems to uh, enlarge the, the, the pool of possible molecules that you can align by a, a large extent. All right, I'm lost. So I, I thought this was a part of the pharmacophore alignment that you were saying you were doing as part of the precursor step for doing the um, um, the grid alignment, but I don't quite understand the 3D QSR well enough. 
Well, um, the first tool which was born was the 3D QSAR part. That that implies that you already have some some way to to make the alignment. Right. Then so we're still we have stu- we still haven't gotten to the point where you're doing the three D QSAR. You're, we're still getting to the point where you're making the grids. Yeah. So uh, the reason why I started from the three D QSAR tool and not from the alignment tool, which would be the most logical way uh, to to do, was that actually I already had. Uh, the alignments made, and I needed the tool to to make the computation on a high throughput basis. That is, without having to input each and every model through, for instance, a graphical user interface, as I used to do when I was using tools like Gulp, for instance, to make the chemometric analysis. But then, of course, the tool was very fine for me because I had other ways to accomplish the alignment. But you know, after the 20th email where people was asking, ah, oh, that's a nice tool, but how the hell I'm going to align the compounds to make 3D QSAR? I thought the time was ripe <laughs> to make so, an alignment tool. So and then, so you started off with the 2D QSAR tool. Yeah. And then from that, you needed the alignment tool. And from yes. that, you needed the, sub, the confirmation generation tool. Exactly. Exactly. It's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. Okay. Well, but so you for the uh, pharmacophile alignment, so it's the precursor to your 3D QSAR code. For that, are you using Faro? Faro? Yep. Yep. Okay. And what's interesting to me is that, of course, Silicos came out last year saying we're going to support OpenBabel. We'll release our stuff as open source. Source. We'll make this available to the world. And so, here's an exa- example where you said, "Well, here's the source code available. I can use it for my tool." Yeah. And probably saved you a lot of time too. Yeah, and actually, I think my my implementation was actually one of the first using Faro because I met um, Gerthis at um, a meeting Goslar last year, and actually they were very happy about seeing that someone was using their tool after just after I think a few weeks after they they released it as an open source, and uh, they also put um, the PDF of my poster actually on their website as an example application using it. So I was quite pleased with that. And so, how did you find out about their tool? Was it just because they announced it to the Open Lab list? I, I saw the paper in Journal of Molecular Graphics and Modeling, and the way I found it be, was because I was I was craving the web uh, to to find a free and open source alignment tool because I, I wanted to see if actually I wanted to try a kind of uh, brute force approach to 3D user model building, and before spending a lot of time in coding my own alignment tool, I wanted to have a hint whether this could make sense or not. So I needed the tool to, to be able to, to test the whole procedure in a, in a, in a short time with, uh, without losing a lot of time in something that probably didn't have a chance to work. So as, as long as I, see, I saw that actually there was a chance that this was going to work, then I also coded my own alignment tool, which was not better than Faro intrinsically, but probably more fit for 3D QSAR, because actually the kind of alignment that you need for 3D QSAR are particularly consistent, because uh, every small inconsistency in the alignment, of course, uh, increases the, the background noise in your models and hides the signal. So that's why you need a quite a, a special purpose alignment tool, I would call, for 3D QSAR. So you use the form, form alignment to do the kind of six degree of freedom alignment of your molecule to the reference. Yeah. Then you take that, transform your original confirmation that you've generated, yeah. and then that's where you finally get to the point where you're starting to do the 3D QSAR. Yeah, exactly. So how does that how does that go? That's you did that's embedded inside of a grid, and you're working with grid space and doing more work with force fields there. Is that inside of OpenBabel? 
Uh, well, uh, that part of the computation is really extremely trivial because uh, what you compute is just basically the non-bonded part of the force field because you are just computing right. the Van der Waals, the Leonard Jones potential, and the uh, Coulombic part of the potential. So that's that's really an extremely easy uh, job to do. So you don't need any fancy uh, molecular mechanics to you can call it in ten minutes. <laughs> I would say. So. And you're only talking about a few dozen atoms. So with the n squared. Easy algorithm is yeah. no, not a problem. Yeah, no, definitely. It okay. isn't. Yeah. So you generate the grid, you assign energy points, you then do an, you have the overlay of the grids, and there's... This is the part where I'm not sure what goes on next. You do, was it a subtraction of the energy values or difference in the energy values? And No, you take, uh, you take um, the energy value grid for each and every molecule, and then you, you just build a PLS model out of all the grid uh, values. So you have thousands, tens of thousands of energy values, and the PLS is mm. very precious in just picking out the ones which actually have a variance across the data set and just throw away what, all the points which are basically either zero or uh, they have uh, the cutoff value because the, there is an obvious steric clash or because your your point is inside the molecule or because uh, many molecules of the data sets actually are quite similar in certain parts and dissimilar only in small moieties. So the PLS right. is very good at extracting only the, the real uh, different information that you have across your data set. Now, this is the point where you hit the uh, patent problem. Yeah, because I admit that I was very naive, but I'm always <laughs> naive in my life, apparently, because um, I was uh, I was not very much concerned about this point because I thought, ah, but, you know, I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm not doing that for, yeah, you're laughing. But I was really convinced about that because I was doing it on a non-profit basis and... This was an academic tool, and of course, I'm sure it, it could not even think of competing with a full-featured 3D modeling uh, suite like Sibyl. I mean, that's, that's a tool, the complete tool with a graphical user interface, which allows you to do every and single step from conformational search to alignment to 3D user model building. My tool at the at that moment was just doing... 3D QSAR uh, model building. So, I mean, I don't think it was a competitor. And I was very confident when I wrote to Tripos that they would just tell me, ah, yeah, go along, it's not a problem. Especially because the patent had already expired in the USA and it was going to expire in Europe in, in one year anyway. So I didn't think it would make a difference. But I received, I admit, a very polite but it was a no, not a yes. So that's, that forced me to, to use a, a very unpleasant uh, geographical restriction distribution policy and also forced me uh, to be, not to be able to, to distribute it on a real open source basis. So, uh, of course, the source was available, has always been available, but you could not modify and redistribute because you don't have a license to do that. So this is going to end starting from June 18, 2011. That is, in 10 days, uh, it will be over because the patent will be expired everywhere in the world. So I will be finally able to release it under GPLv3 without issues. So you're releasing this under GPLv3. Why V3 instead of V2? Because I know App Op OpenBabel has a V2 license. Yeah, mm, you know... That's I'm, historical reasons. I, I, I admit that I'm not uh, a, 
a big expert of licenses, and I read both GPL v2 and v3, and I admit that I could not catch the fine differences between them, and I thought, as, as any you know, software guy is doing, I will take the most recent one. <laughs> I admit that this is probably, again, very naive, but you know, I don't care very much about these things. So. Uh, I've actually read and listened to various things about the GPL v3, and it sounds like a better license all around than the v2 is. Mm. So there's some pretty good advantages to it that were considered in v3 with lots of input mm. that in the early 1990s were not fully thought out when, the v, when v2 came out. So one of the things you talk about on your webpage is that this is an automated uh, tool. How do, you, how do you automate it? Cause is it yeah. a scripting language or is it commands yeah. or how? I think that uh, yeah, the, main, the main thrust behind the whole story was really making uh, a suite which, which was suited for high throughput modeling that is completely unsupervised to the highest degree and scriptable. So um, I, I thought quite a long time if it was convenient to make really a, a pure command line tool, but since uh, the software has many, many options, it, it appeared to me that making a command line tool would just uh, mean to add a plethora of different options that no one would ever remember and in the end it would not have been very handy as a, a pure command line tool. So I decided rather to go for an input script with a very simple syntax that is keyword equal to parameter and like in a kind of charm-like fashion if, if I think it could be a, a good example or an ember-like fashion. So small uh, input scripts text-based, very uh, easily, uh, which are very amenable to building in an automated way with uh, Oak or SED or whatever kind of stream editing tools. So I think that was the, the best way to, to go around it. And because it's for high throughput, I think I saw something in there about how it's parallelized. It's parallelized uh, using uh, just... Uh, P-threads, uh, of course, P-threads mm -hmm. on the Unix platforms and uh, native Windows threads on Windows. Uh, actually, here I mentioned that uh, the software is, is, of course, available as uh, source code, but it's also available as pre-compiled binary distributions for Linux, Windows, Mac OS X, and Solaris and FreeBSD. So you don't have to, to care about... I was looking at your gallery page and surprised of how many operating systems you had actually tested it on. Yeah, actually that takes a long time each time you have to make just a small bug fix because you have to rebuild all the versions and mm -hmm. that, that's very time consuming. But uh, I think it's, it's quite essential, especially in the first stages of your, of your uh, software life, that it's immediately available to users without their having to, to build it especially when you have a number of different dependencies and you easily get lost in getting all of them, and especially if you don't have a big experience with uh, building software from source. So. I released um, a package last week, week and a half ago now, and in the first few comments I got back was, are there pre-built packages for Windows I'm not used to compiling? So I agree. Yeah. yeah. In addition to these operating systems, I also saw that you had support for visualizing um, some of the results in not only PyMole, but... Uh, MOE, Sybil, and Maestro. Yes. So you do a lot of integration work there. That's that takes a good amount of time. Yeah, because um, yeah, of course, as long as you're using uh, coordinated files, okay, any any software suite can read MOL or SDF files, so that's not a problem. The problem was about the 
uh, importing the binary grids that is the the, the ISO contours that show visually show where you should add, for instance, steric bulk or uh, negative electrostatic potential in your in your structures. So those are are all proprietary formats. So you you have to to actually output all the different formats for all the, all the different uh, software platforms that you want to target. So um, for for PyMol, the format that PyMol can read is the same as uh, the inside uh, two format. So mm. that was, but uh, talking about Mo, talking about Sibyl, talking about uh, Schrodinger Maestro, then all of them have different formats. So I had to support all of them and test all of them. <laughs> that's, but I think that, again, it's, it's essential that people who are used to, to certain tools don't have to switch just because your software cannot target your, the platform that, that you are used to. So uh, I think that one should always have users in mind when, when you release software rather than just your own convenience. So... I, it was not bad for me to, to also because you know testing different platforms and different formats is also a very good way of debugging nasty things that otherwise you can overlook because you know just testing a couple of compilers many times shows you some weaknesses of your code that otherwise you would just overlook. So it was it was not lost time I think. So how do you do the testing? Do you have, for instance, automated tests, or do you mostly run manual tests? Mm, I, I made basically a script which touches more or less all of the features of the software in order to, to be able... Still, I admit that sometimes it happened that adding some module to the software, I could experience regressions in other parts that I forgot to test each and every time, yeah. because you would never imagine that touching the part with you thought was miles away from that one would screw up <laughs> another one. But that comes with experience. I don't have a big developing experience, so I'm building it slowly. <laughs> so then how did you get into this field? Because we've told me now it sounds like you've had some development develop background, but you're here doing chemistry. How did you learn to do the software development? Yeah, actually, um, I, said, I must say that I, I've I was born as an organic synthetic chemist, and actually uh, my career has gone from 1998 to 2006 as an organic chemist. And the, the only thing I was using computers was for writing papers and sending emails. So I had no kind of programming experience, and I also barely knew what... Um, you know, a computer was, and uh, I didn't know about a word called Linux and all of this. So I really started from scratch. So I know that if some professional program member will look at my code, probably especially the oldest part of my code, well, he would have some comments <laughs> about it, <laughs> probably, but... Yeah, it works. <laughs> when, when programmers look at other programmers, they also have comments. So they're <laughs> yeah, not saying much. Probably, yeah. But still, uh, you know, it was uh, actually a big, uh, a big effort to, for instance, to to parallelize things efficiently. Because, yeah. uh, for instance, the first release that I made. Uh, of my software was really slow and before making the public release I was able able just making better parallelization to improve like 10 per the, the original performance so I really I really understood how much space you have for for improvements and for optimization of, of the code but I think that right now I, I made benchmarks against Golp which is the the only only um, chemometrics tool that I had I had access to, and um, the performance on uh, uh, one-to-one core uh, 
comparison, it's the same. But the, the nice point is that Golpe is not parallel, while my software is. So, of course, if you use an 8-core machine, then you get 8 per performance. So that's good. You actually get 8-volt speed up. Yeah, because um, you don't you don't have very much I.O., so oh, it really yeah. scales linearly. That's, nice. that's a very good point. And I'm really planning to, to do GPU... Uh, Porting of some of the code because it's extremely amenable to high degree of parallelization. So I really expect to get very very good speed ups when when I will do that. But I really had didn't have the time. That's future development. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been enjoyable talking with you and learning more about how the three D QSR program you've worked works and to hear more about the background of just what goes into writing such a program. Thank you. I hope that I have uh, you know somehow raised curiosity in the audience and that someone can actually try my tools and especially give me feedback about bugs, new features, and whatever you can imagine of. So the name of the program or the website is? Uh, the name of the website is open3dqsr.org and open3dalign.org for the 3dqsr and LMN programs respectively. So it's quite easy to remember. Thank you for listening to Molecular Coding. This podcast and transcript are distributed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharelike License 3.0 Unported License. The theme music was composed and performed by Andrea Stefan.